Future Self Podcast, Episode 30. Start thinking in how I can communicate niche. It will allow you to, to sift to the top of people who are in the exact need. And when you only communicate that niche, they'll be attracted to you. This is the Future Self Podcast. He's your host, Robert Ingalls. Hello, Future Self listeners, and welcome to episode 30 of the Future Self Podcast, your resource for knowledge, insight, and inspiration. You know, I should totally start a podcast. If you have ever said those words, then you are in the right place. I am teaming up with Advent Coworking to bring you Advent Podcast University, Charlotte's first comprehensive podcasting course designed to take you from your idea that you have right now to being on iTunes in four short weeks. Now, whether you're a hobbyist or you're ready to create a business and a brand around your podcast, this course provides you with the tools to bring your unique vision to life. Even if you're still trying to nail down that perfect podcast idea, we have you covered there too. So if you're ready to take your idea and get it on iTunes, go to yourpod.pro to sign up for details. Yourpod.pro. All right, let's jump into today's show. This week, I sat down with Kevin Monaghan of Intuitive Compensation Group. I had such a blast recording with Kevin. He has one of the most unique and compelling stories I have had the pleasure of telling on the Future Self Podcast. From getting out of school and working as a financial advisor to finding himself in Hollywood working as a production assistant on The Office, then moving to China and getting into finance there, and then coming back and founding the Intuitive Compensation Group here in Charlotte. It is an interesting story, and Kevin was a lot of fun to talk with. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Man, you make me want to bring back my leather wristlets. I got a good brown one. They are back. <laughs> they, they they were in the closet for a long time. Um, well, I just felt like I felt like I'd reached a point in my life where I wasn't supposed to dress like that anymore. You know, I was a lawyer. I was supposed to wear suits and uh, look a certain way. And 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 I always like kind of wore suits that I felt comfortable in, like you know, some trimmer stuff, uh, more kind of a more European look. But still, at the same time. Well, and sometimes I would wear, you know, some of the stuff I like to wear. And then, you know, some of the lawyers you hang out with kind of give you a hard time. But that's my fault, too, for even caring, you know, yeah. really. Like, it's just like, yeah, whatever, you know, let it roll off. But I just felt like I kind of had a mold I was trying to fit into it at least a little bit. And then once I made the decision to walk away, I was like, I'm back. <laughs> like, it was like a rebirth. It was like, I can. Oh, man, you in court must have had a lot of fun. Oh, man. Yeah, I can literally wear what I want to wear. I can be who I want to be. Uh, and, and it's, it's not only not looked down upon, it's appreciated. Like, you know, now as the director of startup grind, I'm in the entrepreneur world, I'm a podcast consultant. Uh, you know, it's appreciated. People appreciate that kind of, you know, more artistic side of me of, you know, just kind of being who I am. I got to tell you, I I have dreams of me getting, being t-shirt jeans, tattoo beard, you know, the, uh, but I can't, I can't pull the trigger. And I actually, I went to, because I want to build that speaking aspect of, of the business, not just the podcast, but I think, I think I do very well on stage. And so 2018 is about building that. Right. I went to a seminar where the guy told me, we, he said, if he doesn't wear a tie, he gets 15% less result than he would if he, when he was wearing a tie. He goes, I don't want to be up here wearing a tie in front of you. 
But I track this. He's one of those guys who tracks the bottom line of everything. Right. He goes, I do 15% better when we wear a tie, so we wear a tie. Because if I'm going to be doing something with my time, there's no point in it's not worth it to me to, to be penalized for it. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. If I, yeah. if I had those metrics and it was like, you're going to make yeah. 15% more money every single day if yeah. you wear a tie, I will wear two ties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, well, I like wearing ties anyway. Don't get me wrong. I have, I don't know, probably 50 ties in my closet. I like ties. They're fun. I wore a tie yesterday. Uh, but at the same time, I, I like, you know, not, not having to, but yeah, if the thing I was doing that brought me a lot of joy that I, I was really fun to do, and I also could make 15% more if I just, you know, put a cravat on, yep. <laughs> I will absolutely, cravat away, yeah. <laughs> I will cravat away. <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, I like dressing up. I do. Uh, it, it's just, I also like the artistic ability to kind of be on my own time too. So yeah, ch- my chosen path helped out a lot. Yep. So yeah, I want to spend some time digging into your story, man. You know, your your LinkedIn profile is a, is a thing to behold. Oh, is it? <laughs> it is. Well, you know, you, you, you get out of college in 01, and then you work for five years in the financial world. And then all of a sudden, we are not on the East Coast anymore. We're in, in Hollywood working on, uh, you know, television. Yeah. So... Uh, not, not to kind of gloss over that whole thing, but what was you know your career trajectory? What did you go to college for? Sure. I went to college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I did marketing because I thought I was creative, and I really had I wasn't ready for college. I should have done something else rather than go to college. I picked the first school that accepted me, went there, didn't learn a thing until I went studied abroad, and I went over into Australia, and I went in a business school there, and the first day they go, you got to start a business. Business plans are due in two weeks. Goodbye. And then that was that was the teacher. That was that was it. He wow. left, and then there was a TA there. I had never had that structure in a class before. And they said, "I'm here for help. Otherwise, go to it." And we had to build a business, and uh, I really enjoyed that aspect of of the kind of learning. But to get back to the story, I had I had started a financial career because I went to school during that time. It was the tech dot com bubble, if you will, or the the lead up into it. Sure. So, you know, I'd come home and I'd have this Motley Fool portfolio and I'd see myself making hundreds of thousands of dollars a day with my mock million dollar portfolio picking pets.com. And I said, I can do this. This is, this is great with no background of how, you know, that there was, that there could ever be a bad year. I had never been an adult in a downturn, if you will. Sure. So I thought it was going to be all roses. I had, my father said, oh, you want to go into finance, come work with my firm. And I did, and what I found out was the reality was it wasn't as exciting as coming in, trading money, making money, getting paid. There was a lot to, I joined a full planning process firm, and it took me two years to realize that it was a business, it was a uh, a long process to develop relationships with people, and I was 21 years old. I didn't know how to dress well. I didn't know how to, I had a mop on my head for a haircut. <laughs> and I did, I enjoyed it. I, I told myself, you know what? I really enjoyed this, but I'm not making any money money doing it. So I think in two years, I got a check that sits on my desk after seven months. My, my only paycheck was 12 cents. And then I think I made $6,000 over two years. So I had to go and I needed a corporate job. I went and worked at T. Rowe Price for one year. And I realized corporations weren't for me. I actually quit in my performance review. They came in, they showed me my numbers were better, three times better than anybody else in the nation because I was very fast paced. I could talk, I, I got people on the phone, I was friendly with them, they liked me and I solved their problem quick and I got to the next call and I had that hustle mode. I was hustling and then in the, 
in the review meeting, in my annual review meeting, they showed me the numbers and I was doing leaps and bounds more than anybody else. And I was getting paid the same as the guy next to me who was slow, who wasn't productive, who checked his email, who complained all day long. And I went, well, you got to pay me more. And they said, oh, no, no, no. We, uh, you're at your grade. We, you're, you're getting the highest we can pay you. And I said, well, that's not fair. And we wound up being in uh, just, it wasn't going to be an environment where I couldn't get paid for performance. Right. So I said, you need to promote me. They said, you got to work there two more years to be promoted. And I went, this isn't for me. Quit then and there. Had no plan of what I was going to do. I was in Baltimore at T. Rowe Price then. Uh, I got in my car. I could do complex options trading. So I quit my job on a whim. So I didn't plan this out. Packed up my car and I just started driving to Chicago because I figured I could park out somewhere in downtown Chicago, all my stuff in the car, hopefully it wouldn't get stolen. And I was gonna just have a sign that said, I will do anything, give me a chance. And I was gonna stand out there in a suit and a tie and hopefully somebody would, would let me run coffees, do something so I could get in because options trading was, you had to be quick thinking, quick at math. And, and I was one of the few people who could trade complex options orders quickly. And I figured I could move up and be one of those guys that you see in the movies with the pits, right. you know, screaming and yelling. That was my plan. So I, I was on my way there. I took a phone call from my old college roommate who was in Los Angeles. He was a production assistant on the television show Scrubs. And he said, you know, you're pretty funny. Uh, he thought I was. <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you come to, to Los Angeles? You can sleep on my floor and you can build a comedy career. You can do stand-up comedy. You always wanted to try it. So that sounded better than no plan in Chicago. Uh, a, play, a place to sleep was a lot better than staying in my car. So now at this point in your life, have you ever been on stage and done stand-up comedy? No. Okay. I took so an he, improv class once. So he, you're, on, you're in your car on your way to Chicago with basically everything you own. Yeah. And you get a call and it's like, hey, come sleep on my floor and do stand-up comedy. And you're like, all right. It was a roof over my head and a friend. I hear that because uh, it's it, it only safety I needed in my life. At that it didn't point. sound like there was anyone in Chicago waiting for you. Nope. That yeah. would have been a car. I would have been on my own and I wouldn't have minded it, but I didn't have anything better to do. That was something to do. It may, there was a floor involved. Sure. That, right, so you turned west. So I headed west. Okay. So I got out there and what was very interesting was it was highly competitive. There's no shortage of people moving to Los Angeles to try to, to build some type of dream. Yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was very, I got out there and I said, what do I do? How do I get a job? He said, well, you got to start faxing and calling all these places. You got to send your resume over and, and interview for production assistance. So I did. And I wanted to, at that time, the office was, you know, he was in comedy TV, so he was showing me all these comedies, and we were watching the British version of The Office, and he said, they're coming here to the U.S., and I said, boy, that would be a great show to get on. So I had gotten a, a job on America's Funniest Home Videos, uh, driving the contestants from the airport to the studio and back, and then watching the video submissions come in. So you got paid minimum wage to watch vid comedy videos all day, so not too bad. I mean, I've spent a lot of my days doing that for free, so. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, was, it was good. I had to run, it was a very well-run company. They were established show. They had been around for years and years, and it was simple. They had all their processes in place, where a lot of new shows, it's all new people. You know, you, it takes a while to get, to get your routine down. So I had, uh, I was working on America's Funniest Home Videos, 
and I was calling the office. It, what was interesting about me was because I used to have to follow up with people to sell life insurance and, and disability insurance and, and talk about money with a stranger, it built communication skills that I realized just naturally now were in me. So I was calling these places and I knew how to follow up. So it took me eight months of constantly calling, getting to know the getting to know the uh, production assistants, the other people. They knew me. And I'd, I'd call up and I'd say, hey, I just want to make sure my resume is on top of the pile. I've updated this. I'm going to send it over. Just want to make sure you received it. And, and if, you're, if you have any openings. Nope. Well, I got to know them by doing this over eight months. And it turned out one time that I called, they said, you know, somebody just had a, has to go back to the East Coast for a funeral. Why don't you fill in for three days? And that was the chance. And what were we filling in doing? I was supposed to be the production assistant, so I was just r- delivering scripts. We were on location. The, the episode was Dwight's Speech. So I think in season one or two, he, he, there's an episode called Dwight's Speech. And I was supposed to run back and forth all day. What I was doing was I was supposed to be running back and forth. However, Dwight was sick that day. So in, it was an insurance day, as they call it. So he was sick. He had to go to the doctor. $2 million production cost is insured. But we had nothing to do, and nobody knew who I was. So I was walking around, and nobody knew any direction to give to me or anything else. But I had tried to proactively, you know, hey, what can I do to help? And I just went around to everybody. They liked the work ethic. They liked the – I was pleasant with everybody. And it came to, hey, we have a, somebody's leaving. We have a spot opening up. We want you to take take it and uh, join us. Would you be willing to? And that was my dream show. So nice, I love was. that. Was you know to back up just a little bit. You know, you'd been you'd spent five years in the financial industry, and and now you you know you make that decision to head west to you know put a roof over your head and sleep on the floor. But I also have to assume that you know you'd probably at least become accustomed to a certain type of lifestyle and a certain type of daily routine. Was there any fear in making that decision and in, in jumping into like this completely different pond with millions and millions of other people trying to do it? No, I, I don't think so. I've never feared mater- not having material things. I live a very simple lifestyle. So I didn't have, I don't have a home even now. I just don't, it's, it's not in me to, to be set. I'd rather, I'm a workaholic, if you will. So I just like my attention being focused on what I'm doing. And that becomes kind of my lifestyle, my source of happiness, if you will. So when we went out to the show, I mean, it's long hours. You wake up at 8 a.m. and you're working till 10, 11, 12, 1, 2 a.m. sometimes. Well, the whole life was there. It fit my personality and persona. We're eating on the stage. We're, my friends are all at the studio. It was just an environment that suited my personality and you know, I had an apartment, but just went went home to sleep there. Right, and, and I think one of the, another thing I want to kind of point out for the listener is, is the way you were able to get that job is you showed up and you were willing to do anything. You were yep. willing to get out there and hustle and do anything and, and face rejection and, and just stay at it. And and by doing that, you positioned yourself to be in the right place at the right time. Correct. You know, if you know if someone hadn't been out that day or had to go back for a funeral that day. Uh, you know, that opportunity wouldn't have occurred. But had you not already been hustling to position yourself to be there, you wouldn't have been the person that they called. Correct. And and then when you did show up, there was nothing to do. Hustle, positive attitude. But you found something to do. Correct. My mom told me when I was growing up, no matter what you do, be the best at it. You know, if you have a job sitting at a desk answering the phone, 
and the phone's not ringing, get up and wash the windows. Right. Like, go do something that makes you stand out. And, th- and that sounds like what you did. You got there. There was nothing to do. There was no one to tell you what to do. So you made yourself something to do. You found something to do. And, and that got you noticed. And, and it got you, uh, it sounds like the full-time gig on yep. the job. Correct. So yeah, if you're going to do something, do some, do it great. And then the other one is, I think there, to add to your point there, there's an art to that communication of the phone follow-up. And this is where I see a lot of people not do it well. But if you want, I wanted something from somebody who I was just going to be a number for them calling in. But there is an art to a communication that I see a lot of people struggle with. So let me give you an example. I would call up and I would say, I wouldn't just say, are you hiring? I'm checking on my resume. I would say, hey, this is Kevin. I was just calling for a quick minute to see if I could follow up on my resume. Last time we spoke, you know, you said you guys were hustling. Is it any, is it, is the schedule any less hectic now? Uh, yeah, it's not bad. We got a break next week. Oh, you doing anything fun for the break? Yeah, we're going to, uh, I'm going back home for that. Where's home? Alabama. Okay, great. I will, um, why don't I do this? I'll fax over my resume over there so you guys still have it fresh and Hopefully you, you put it on the top <laughs> and, <laughs> and I will, um, why don't I call you in two weeks, make sure you got it and see how th- everything went for Alabama. I love that because some of the things you do, I mean, as someone who has hired a number of employees, you hit so many points there that people don't think about. Right. A, you followed up, which a lot of people just don't do. They just hope for the best. But when you followed up, you didn't do it in a very robotic way. You, you got them on the phone. You reminded them who you were. You were personable. You asked them questions. You you created a conversation that was outside of the, will you hire me? Correct. Uh, you know, you asked them about their life. You learned a little bit. Maybe they learned a little bit about you, and you injected a little bit of humor into it. And and, and that is different than the things they're used to, be, used to doing, and it's going to affect them differently. It's going to make them feel differently about you. Correct. So it personalized it a little bit, but what I did was two things. One, I managed his expectations of when I was going to call him back. So that we now we know the next follow-up point. So he knows that that's a really good characteristic is that, hey, this person's going to... So now when I'm calling, I'm not annoying him. I told him I would, and we agreed that it was okay. He said, yeah, sure, that, that sounds great. So now when I call back, I get to say, hey, how was the trip to Alabama? Hey, James, it's Kevin. How was the trip to Alabama? Oh, it was great. I got to see this, this, but we're back in hustle mode. Okay. I, as I mentioned, I just wanted to see if that resume hit and uh, or that you got it. Yep, we received it. Great. I tell you what, I'll... You know, I, I know you guys are going to be busy the next four or five weeks. I'll give you a call back next month just to see if anything's opened up and look forward to catching up with you then. Yeah, you just demonstrated resume skills without actually having to say them out loud. Good. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you did. Like, it, it, it's, I have attention to detail. I have good time management skills. I have good people skills. And, and these are all things you didn't have to be like, no, but you should hire me because I have these things. You demonstrated you have those things. Right. And, and you're likable. And that's honestly, I mean, when it, when I'm hiring people, the person who is likable gets hired before the person who has better credentials or is just maybe uh, all, they might produce better. But ultimately, if I have to work with you every day, you have to be likable. And if you're going to be talking to my customers, you really have to be likable because nothing will get you out the door faster than treating my customers with even the smidge of contempt. Right. You know, so yeah, the likableness and and the ability to, uh, you know, be humorous, those are all things. And those are things you can establish in that phone call. People want to work with people they like and trust. Absolutely. And you build both of those over those continual conversations. But it was professional persistence, if you will, in, 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 in how to follow up. And ironically, I got those skills from 
you know, the insurance industry or coming into a foundational planning firm that, that believed in, you know, insurance first and then investments. And yeah. Was there cold calling involved in that stuff? Yep. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's the one area. I'm glad I never did it. It probably would have given me some sharper skills, but, uh, I, I have so much contempt back to that word for cold calling. When people call me and they get me on the phone and, and a lot of times they, you know, sometimes not, I don't want to say a lot, but there's been so many times where people will get me on the phone under kind of false pretenses yep. and oh my God, like do and you, trust. Yeah. Do you, you cannot... think that I will ever work with you? Correct. Because they would call my paralegal and they'd act like they knew me. Right. And then they get through to me. I'm like, who are you? So when we were cold, when I was cold calling in the financial industry and we haven't gotten to China yet, but we, we cold called over there. And I used to tell people if your first introduction to somebody is you lying to them what kind of relationship are you building a foundation for absolutely and but they're trying to take the the long you know the short way around correct because yeah getting me to actually sit down with you might take a little bit of time correct because everyone's trying to sell you something all the time and and if you're going to try to take that short path it's never it's almost never going to be the right one yeah there is an art form i i think going into cold calling or something that cold calls when you're young sharpens your communication skills because what it gets out is all the filler words you use. You'll hear me use some. I've lost it. I don't cold call anymore. But I, I have a habit too. <laughs> you will, it forces you to get to the point faster. And because you're cold calling over and over, you realize what works and what doesn't work and you get live painful feedback. Yeah, you're like split testing on the spot. Correct. So if you say something and it doesn't work, they hang up on you. Boom. Then what you realize is that you twist it a little bit and that next person didn't hang up on you. They just said, hey, look, I appreciate what you're doing, but not for me. Thank you. Bye. And it's, it, you change their persona. And then all of a sudden you try twisting something else and they go, yeah, no, maybe, but not now. And then they get you get permission to call back. And that was where I had learned those skills was in the cold call. I said, it's better to build a relationship with somebody and not try to sell them because there's no... They just think you're trying to sell them something, and that's what you're in it for. So if you try to build a relationship with them, they'll you earn the respect of their time to get in front of them to talk about whatever it is, and they've already you've already planted some value that they're going to get out of it. Was there any you know dealing with that rejection? Did that bother you at all? Yes and no. I don't think it ever not bothers you. And there's some days that you can take it very easily, and there's some days that you just don't want to. I mean, you have to. You have to get your energy levels consistent. You have to be in that zone, and, and it focuses you on being consistent for the long term, not you realize that there's no point in being up and down all day long because when you're down, it just it ruins you. Sure. It ruins you. Sure. All right, so to come back uh, around, you know, you're, you get that gig on the office. The uh, spot opens up, and now you're a full-time employee, minimum wage employee. Close, yeah. Close. Um, <laughs> What what was your plan? Like you were you were, you got that job. You're in that moment. What did success in that moment look like? It looked like be be in the moment. So enjoy do do what you do great. And I wanted to be a comedy writer. So we we missed that the first day I got there. I went on stage twice and said, "Oh, I want to be a comedy writer, not a not a stand up comedian." Uh, so let's uh, let's dig into that a little bit. So you say when you first got there, you went on stage. Where'd you go on stage? I th- it was an open mic in North Hollywood. I, d- I wouldn't remember the place. Okay, and you said I would remember the rejection. Though. And you said you did it twice. Is that what you said? Correct. So well, that's f- good. At least you went back for a second try. So tell me about the first time. I love it. So you, it was my, shaking. Just my hand shaking. I couldn't be myself. I was so nervous. I uh, there was no tonality to my punchlines. There was no storytelling to my punchlines. It was you could read that I was extremely nervous. 
just delivered it. I got to think a sympathy laugh or two, but that was about it. And it was a dead room. Luckily, the fr- it was only like a minute set that you had because it was, you know, they they usually they allocate a certain amount of time. And if there's X amount of speakers, they divide it by how many people are there. And that's how much time you get. So I said I'd go back. I did better the second time, but I, I was using other people's jokes. And I think that was apparent and it wasn't authentic, if you will. Sure. I mean, I, all of that sounds par for the course to me. Uh, I'm a huge stand-up comedy fan. And I you know, I've d- I've dug into the you know deep stuff on comedians I really like, and and that's why YouTube has been amazing for that because you can dig up some of the early work. Out of, of these curiosity, people. who's a comedian that you? Uh, so Mike Birbiglia was a guy I really okay. liked. I still love him, and he's he's amazing. He's one of the best storytelling comedians out there today. Uh, I really really like him. I've seen him live probably a dozen times, and but he you know he tells this story about his first time going on stage. I think he was. Uh, he had written all this material and I think he got through like four minutes of it. And, but he said, he's like so nervous. He's like throwing up and, and he tells the story and it's so funny, like how he went there and he didn't get, you know, he's like, I don't think I got any laughs. And, and now he is one of the, the best guys in the business. Like just, just looking at him at his mannerisms, like in between his jokes is enough to make you just like, fall over laughing because he's nailed that performance to it. Uh, but it sounds like you were like, no, like, whereas he did it and he bombed, he was like, he had, he felt like he wanted to keep trying. Yeah. Whereas it seems like you kind of went through it and you were like, I didn't even like anything. I about took an that. easier path for some reason. I, and I, I think it was, had I had some money or some stability around it, I think it would have kept going in the comedy world, but it was very lonely. Do you think it was the easier path or do you think that it just wasn't something you were obsessed with that wasn't you didn't, because I've done that in my life a lot of times. I've decided I wanted to do something. I've tried to do it. I've not been good at it. And I didn't have the internal obsession that made me say, I'm not going to stop until I can. Because I wasn't I've given aware, up on things. I wasn't aware of how to go after something. I had just kind of floated to what felt right. So right. I wasn't aware of, if I was aware, had the awareness I do now of what to do to make something happen, then I would have pushed. I would have known to push it. Right. I think I took a paycheck and uh, an opportunity to get a steady income to do something was more appealing or needed at the time. And I didn't have the awareness or the I didn't know how to build something and not get paid for it. It was just, hey, getting on stage every night is great, but you don't get paid for it. What am I going to do for money? Absolutely. That I was think, a bigger deterrent. I think that story probably resonates with everyone in some way in their life. Because I mean, honestly, right now for me, you know, these years later from where you were. I, I still have that. I, I still have the, you know, I'm creating a thing, trying to get paid for it. Uh, it's scary, but I'm just at a different place. If I was in this place at, you know, 21 or however old you were, similar decision. Yeah. I, and, and that's why I never did anything like that because it it was like jumping out into the great blue ocean and not knowing how to swim. Yeah. What was very interesting was I, I did meet and I used to go see this comedian. It was $5 one Monday every month or every two Mondays a month. And I used to go down to Largo and just watch him. I'd go on my own because he was he was fantastic. And I'd watch him and I wound up talking to him afterwards one day and I said, how did you do it? And he said, for two years I went on and I was just so bad. I was so bad over and over and I couldn't get anywhere. I wasn't doing anything, but I just kept getting up on stage. I didn't know how to fail. Well, about a year later after that, he kept getting up. Lo and behold, a movie comes out and who was the the star of it was him. It was Zach Galifianakis. Nice. And it was uh, The Hangover, I think, was his big yeah. big break. I can imagine how long it took him to find his niche because he's so dry. His style is so unique. Yep. And, and, and he's certainly an acquired taste. 
but he he is so unique. But I imagine that that style took a minute. It did. It because he just gets up and he just talks about anything. It's all live. I mean, he's got a piano and he's got one or two set jokes. But he he was one of those comedians that didn't want a routine because he hated people coming and say, "Hey, say this joke." It was live entertainment, and you'd never. He would walk outside with his microphone. They had a long enough cord, and he would just bring random people from the street on stage. So you knew he never had a set, and it just was. Right. He had to create comedy in the moment, and I thought that was brilliant. I mean, and when you watch his movies, it seems like that too. Like yeah. It, lo- yeah. it looks like a lot of that. Like someone wasn't sitting in a room writing. Yeah. Zach is going he, to say this. He probably did. He's uh, when I used to be the writer's assistant on The Office. You'd have a lot of improv on that show, and we had to go back and change the script that was written. So I got to see where they where they ad libbed successfully and where they didn't. And I would imagine. Oh, that's he great. has never. He well, he understands what's supposed to happen in the scene, but he goes his own way to get there. Yeah. And watching The Office seems like they probably ad lib a lot. They do. Yeah. Like they, who who were the like on set? Who were just the people? that were the funniest that you were just like this is ridiculous what was really great about that crew was a lot of them were comedians that had a lot of time in the industry without that instant success so they were all very grounded and a lot of them had comedy backgrounds so they were improv stand-up guys and it just was so natural to them there would be a lot of takes you know the first two were the script and then they'd start winging it over and over and i the funnest thing to do was to sit in the editing room and just watch them go through the takes and watch how they played every scene like the the six different takes were all different right so and everybody could do it yeah it, it's it's one of those shows when you watch it like it it's there's really not jokes per se like some funny movies like you just feel like you're in a place where someone's trying to be funny and, and the entire humor in the office is just that awkwardness in the it's situational yeah. and and i i think like how would you even write that yeah the only one who did an improv was phyllis i think phyllis was actually the casting agent or the casting assistant and they when she, because she was on camera in their readings they said oh your personality is great you got to come on so i think she was the only one that didn't have a comedy background but i think she developed it as as the season went on yeah i i listened to a podcast with rain wilson on it and that was the first time i'd ever heard him not be dwight and <laughs> and it was the the weirdest thing because he's like such a cool dude and i mean he obviously is. like you separate the character from the person um but still after like i mean your brain just absorbs that face and that person as that character and, and then you actually you know hear them and there's someone new and, and, it, and it was so interesting and he's he's such a cool and funny guy and and he's and he's all he's up to like so you know so much uh, doing so much good in the world himself like he I think he created a soul pancake uh, and it's such a cool just a cool little website that's just you know it's very motivational uh, telling happy stories and yeah he's I've been following him ever since I saw he, that podcast and now great. when I watch The Office again it's even better yeah he's there were two people on that show two characters on that show that were fun to deliver scripts to or interesting to deliver scripts to one was Rain Wilson or Dwight and the other was Creed Bratton so Creed. I don't know if many people know this about this. Creed was a famous in a famous musician group so back in the '60s or something. It was I don't know the name of the band, but it went one, two, three, four, sha la 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 la, live for to. Sure, yeah. He was the guitarist in that in that band. <laughs> nice. So when you went to his house, because he was in a successful band a long time ago, he was at like the top of the mountain overlooking LA in what looked like it was built in the 60s and stayed that way and like there was three compounds there I never saw them but there were dogs everywhere running around 
chickens, I think, and, and you would just, you'd have to leave it, but you would never get out of the car because you never knew, you were scared of the dogs. They were just running around everywhere. And then the other one was Rain. I think he moved after season three or so, but you used to have to drive way out. And I think there were horses, and this was just not, not common in Los Angeles. Sure. So, yeah, there was, I think he, he lived on. Maybe that was why he had a, came from a farm. Was <laughs> Somebody went out to his house and said, this is where you live. I, I vaguely remember, but it seemed very farmish right. going to his place. But it was out there. Nice. So how long were you, did you work on that show? So I said I was going to give it three years. I gave it three years, and then I moved over to another show, which was Parks and Recreation. And I said, you know, this would be my chance. I can go up and be an executive assistant or the writer's assistant through that show. And when you start a new show, it goes from six writers to... 14 writers if, it, if it's successful. So it's a chance you take to, to input yourself with the writers and you hope that, hey, if they're going to be hiring, you hope you get considered. Well, the years that I went out there, uh, I said I was going to give myself three, four years and I did. And I realized that with the, with, the, with the oncoming of reality TV and how television was changing, comedy writing jobs were very, very difficult to get and that model just didn't work anymore. If I had gone out five years, 10 years earlier, that was the model. Get on the show, get on a successful show. That writer, a writer or two will spin off and get a new show. You get on that and you hope it becomes successful and then they bring you on as a writer. Right. That model was dead uh, when I got out there. And it was going, you know, people who were getting hired were people making their own YouTube videos. Right. Bo something got like a $500,000 yeah. contract because he had a million hits on YouTube yeah, and, for playing a piano and doing some comedy. Right. And and I love that too. That's one of the things. I mean, I think as a podcaster, that really speaks to me because you know I'm one of those people who was able to put my voice out there without an executive telling me that my voice was worthy of being heard. Well, I didn't like it because I was on the other well, of end. Course. <laughs> of course. I mean, but every I time, like, I mean, you know, I... In my uh, my very when I first built my law practice, I built it around uh, doing unemployment hearings, okay. and and I mean quick like I, I shared office with a guy who was doing them. I was like that looks like cool work. He would hand me off some, and we would buy the names of everyone who was doing unemployment hearings. Uh, anyone who had an unemployment hearing come up, I'd buy their name and I'd send them a thing. And oh man, I mean right off the ground, I started making like pretty good money. And and I got really good at it, and it was my bread and butter. Probably eighty eighty five percent of my income coming from that. And then uh, the, you know, we got a new governor in 2012, and and they started retooling the laws. And one of the ways they were looking to save money was in the unemployment world. And so, you know, they took some pretty sneaky paths to get there, but they they changed the laws around allowing us to get those names anymore. And uh, and because we weren't able to isn't that fun? Free, right, free country, right? And 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 because we couldn't get those names anymore, people don't know. They just don't realize. Because that's what the letter would tell them. Hey, this is a pretty serious issue. They, they very well may have an attorney on the other side. And this is going to be like a court case on the telephone. Some of them are in person, but most are on the telephone. And and without that letter, they just don't know that. They right. don't realize the seriousness of it. They think it's just going to be a quick telephone right. call. They're going to tell their story, and that's going to be it. And so w- that shut off a pipeline of 85, you know, 80 to 85% revenue. of my revenue like that surprise, and, and and so yeah, of course I didn't like it. Now I still think it was a bad idea. Um, I don't think there's any silver lining that there was in like people, you know, having their you know own uh, ability to, to to bring their message to people. But at the same time, that didn't matter. All yeah. that mattered is what I did next. Yeah, you know that bad thing happened. I can sit around being like, oh man, yep. it's terrible. So great point. I could I was sitting there going, you know what? I just see the dynamics at play. You cannot get ahead doing this. What's interesting about that point is I had that awareness and I left. 
So I said, I got to go do something else. I looked around at corporate jobs because I just wanted, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew I needed to leave that industry. My friends are still there trying to make it and still haven't, everybody who I was kind of around, some of them have gotten up, but nobody's made it like you used to make it in, in uh, Hollywood right. on the production side. And I think it's, there was a big shift. I haven't been there, but there was a big shift now to like the Netflix and the, I see more movie stars and, and actors going over there. Oh, I have yeah. no idea I how mean, that's changed. I mean, A-listers, Will Smith just put a movie together on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we we saw, like, I think House of Cards was really the first big one that I was yeah. like, oh, wow, this is real. Yeah. Yeah, and that changed the game, too. But it I, has. And I don't know much about that internal structure, but Netflix, I mean, they seem kind of like a behemoth. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think that they're that much different than the typical production studio. Uh, but, yeah, that was good. It was good to have that foresight because... If you, if you had decided, oh, I'm just going to stick it out, because that's what some people tell you, you just got to keep grinding, you got to keep grinding. Yeah. And that's fine. Like if you have, if you have, if you're grinding and you understand where that path is going to lead and you understand that there is a path to success here, that yep. it's not, you know, you can, there's, there's kind of that, I hope, I hope it works. That's like playing the lottery being like, well, there's a thousand of us trying to get that same job. One of us has got to get it. Yeah. Well, I would rather put myself in a position where there's three of us because I can really distinguish myself when there's three. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot to be said for taking that path as well. It's okay to pivot, to use your experiences and, and take them forward with you. Right. And, and so what, what did you do next? I, I took the, I took those experiences with me. I looked around and everybody I looked around with, I didn't want their life. So I looked around and there was in, I was in Los Angeles. You had to make four or $500,000 a year just to keep up with the Joneses there. And I'm go I was interviewing at these places and I'm looking at the people, I'm listening to their conversation. They're all leveraged. They're all talking about what they have. And it just wasn't for me. I had uh, taken in and I said, I can't, I, what am I going to do? Cause I don't want to do that. Uh, I wound up taking a job in Shanghai, China, and I went back into the finance field. Now let's and, back up. Yeah. So. How are you in Hollywood <laughs> working on parks and recreation and then take a finance job in China? So I needed to do something next, and I realized that I didn't want – I didn't feel American, if you will. I didn't want a house. I didn't want two cars. I didn't want all that stress. And uh, so I was looking at London and Dublin. My brother was out in London, and Dublin I had been to and said, you know, I really liked it there, and uh, maybe I can find a finance job out there. It's hard to get a finance job when you just came from a comedy job, <laughs> although they'll take the interview because they want to hear the story, but they really don't uh, <laughs> They don't want to hire somebody who they think is just going to crack jokes all day long. But at the same time, it was right before the, the 2008 uh, crisis, and there was hiring freezes. You could start to smell the what was in the air, and so nobody was hiring. And so L London and, and Dublin, they were not, not responsive, not hiring. Um, and I said, okay, I need to think of something else. I had a friend who was in China who said, hey, I'll fly you out here, take a look at it, see if you come out for two years, see if you like it. Um, and somebody who has a little bit of experience in finance can make it in China because right now everybody over here knows nothing, but it's becoming, it's growing so fast that you actually have to be a little bit savvy. So because you have that two years experience, we think it will translate well into uh, somebody who's coming out here and helping expats plan. So I went over there with, I think I cashed out $2,000 from my IRA that I had in in China. I didn't have much money or say, or in uh, T. Rowe Price. I didn't have much money. I didn't have anything else. Did but you speak Chinese? No. <laughs> I didn't know. I knew nobody. We were going over there while my friend was there, but I didn't. I was in an environment. I would say for any entrepreneur, this is a fantastic way to 
or experience to live is going somewhere completely out of your culture, your comfort zone, everything else. And I had no money and I had rent due in 60 days and I had enough to get over there and fly and put a deposit down. So I had shelter for two months. I knew nobody. I had to get what was interesting. And we talked about this. You, you had a law change. When I got there, somebody told me, they said, you know, in America, you have all the freedoms and it's a land of the free. You have all the freedoms in the world that you want, but you can only do something if you have the permission, the insurance, the licenses, the you've paid the fees, you've filed the paperwork and everything else. And all that, the hoops. And even then, there's a lot of restrictions around what you can and can't do and say. Sure. So that's America. In China, you can't do anything. There's laws doing anything, but you can do anything you want. And so I got there and I said, do I need my Series 7? Do I need these licenses? They said, nope, just go. So there's laws preventing everything, but they're not enforced. They're, they're enforced differently. Let me put it, let me see if I can give you an example. It's a buyer beware market, if you will. So in other words, if you walked into McDonald's and you'd slip, the culture just says, well, you slipped, be careful. Bad things happen. You slipped, yeah, bad things happen when you slip. You got to be very careful when you walk and you got to look and be aware of what's happening. You know, where here, it's, it's somebody else's fault. I slipped, it's somebody else's fault. They should have been more aware of me. So that comes with a lot less regulation. So there's a lot less startup costs. There's a lot less, if you wanted to be an architect, go be an architect. The downside is you may not have any training on how to be an architect. So there is an element of surprise. Now, now this is going to get a little bit deeper. I don't want to throw you off, but, uh, but I don't know much about that market. Is, uh, you know, I think a capitalist would argue that the market will weed out the bad ones, cool. I mean, and not to devolve the entire show into that, but just... So the bad ones are, you know, a building falls over and the architect that doesn't do it, they get executed. So, I mean, there's extreme punishment. That's a big deterrent. Well, if you can, I mean, that's, that's how, but that's how it is. If you, you know, I think there was a milk scandal over there. If you wound up poisoning all these children and da 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 there's the deterrent is this and this. And they try to cut, you know, the rule of thumb over there was they try to cut as many quarters as they can without getting in trouble. And... It was interesting. It was just very different. But that experience, when you're outside of your comfort zone in so many areas, I had nothing to do but to focus on business. And I had to get money coming in because I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have any, I didn't know how to get a credit card. I didn't know how to walk into a bank. Nobody could communicate with me. I guess English is more prevalent over there. But at the time, I didn't know how to do anything. And so it, I was really outside of my comfort zone, but it forced me to focus just on the business. And it was a great experience as it relates to how to build a business and how to think about it. And a lot of people talk about how many business owners come here from other countries and they start businesses. It's because you have nothing else to do. You don't care about. It was really freeing for me because I couldn't understand the news over there. So like none of the political stuff got in your way. Nothing gets in your way. It was just you could just focus on your life. It was great. Yeah, I like that. That's, I mean, that's something that uh, I know I've talked about it before on the podcast, but that's one of my goals is, is to get out there into the world because it, we're at a place in time where the world is small now. Yeah, it, it's explorable, and and we have the ability. Most of us, uh, I would say, I mean, you know, obviously some jobs require you to be front and center, but uh, you know, an increasing number of jobs you go to that office because your employer wants you to, not because they need you to. Correct. And and so the ability to work almost anywhere. So that is, I mean, that's a non-negotiable for me, is, is so you, creating you a out, life. You want to get out there in the world. Where do you want to go? So, I mean, our first stop is going to be Costa Rica. When? Uh, what's that? When? June of 2020 is the goal. 
Oh, that's so far out there. Right. Well, I mean, you know, we have... We, we could have a, do this on Skype. <laughs> we right? don't have to be here together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my interview this morning was uh, with somebody in the D.C. area on Skype. And, but yeah, so the goal is 2020, in June of 2020, I mean, we have a lot of logistics we have to get sorted out. You know, my wife right now, you know, she has a job. She likes her job. You, you could tell by my past. <laughs> I just make the decision and go. Right, <laughs> right. I, you know, I have a nine-month-old daughter. But the I also know that I don't want to look back in, in 35, 40 years and, and say, man, I wish I would have went. And because I, it means so much to me to connect to other people. And I like connecting to other cultures as well. And, and because I grew up, you know, very, I had a very specific mindset. I'm from a very small town in Eastern North Carolina. And it was so liberating when I went to college and then went to law school to meet all these different people from all these different places in the world that had different life experiences. And it just opened my entire mind up to the possibilities and and that's just scratching the surface. I feel like yeah. I want I want to get out there into it and, and to connect with people and learn new languages. I'm learning Spanish now, and and I want to connect with you know every language you learn opens you up to like a billion other people. You know the big languages. Well, how about think about this? I don't think you even know what it's going to do for your business. Right. You will you'll be, you'll be either more aware that you can be very casual and get things done in X amount of time today, and then get back to the beach, <laughs> and and you you can hone that down, uh, or you will you will realize that you'll have an expertise level because you're international now, and people will view that as a much more positive. There's a coolness factor to it. Sure, I'm doing business with a guy who is in Costa Rica, and he's you know traveling here next month, and so forth. So I think your your business aspect, when you figure, when you get down there, you will realize you'll think about time differently, and you'll think about execution of business very differently, and that's a a great experience, and those gives you good skill sets as well. Yeah, I really look forward to that because you know, like you said earlier, you didn't you know you looked around and you didn't want that life, and and, and I feel very similar to that too, kind of the fish out of water. And not to say that there is anything inherently wrong, and I don't think that's even it. I don't think that I think anything's wrong. I think that I, you know, with the way the world is, I can see, I can go, I talk to people I wouldn't normally be able to talk to. I can, you know, I have, I've met people and developed relationships with people who live in Sweden, and I talk to them, and and I hear from them just about what their day-to-day life is about. And so it's kind of this nagging in my brain of how different it is in different places, and I just... I, I need to go and do it. And so we picked Costa Rica as the first place. Uh, we did a lot of research. Like, we didn't just pick it. We didn't just throw a dart at the map. And, you know, we kind of narrowed it down to the top 10. We talked to everyone we knew that had been, and it just kept coming up. It's one of those things where the universe just seemed to be like, no, 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 this is the place to go first. And, and so... You have a lot more processes around than yeah. I do. Well, do you, you but, you know, something like, okay. <laughs> not, not always, but, it, you know, I guess just at this point in my life, I had to. And if you if you met my wife, you'd understand that too. She's not going to take like, oh, we're going here. Yeah. Why? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, you know, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. she just she's the planner, and yeah. I I need that. Yep. Uh, because I am more just like if somebody says, hey, let's do this, I'm like, let's do it. Because what could happen? Let's go see. Have you thought about doing a like a three week stint down there where you're gonna work, do a, like a work life balance to test it out? Well, we were gonna go and, and kind of you know scope it out. We were going to go down for a couple of weeks and see what was what. But at the same time, uh, I don't think, you know, three weeks isn't going to tell. I need, you know, we, we discussed it. And, and I think a year is kind of the sweet spot of finding out because, you know, things might be a little bit hard in the beginning and we might have to find our, our routine. Yeah. But I want to, it's important for me to know whether or not that's what I want, because right, right now I think I want it. <laughs> 
But I want to make sure that I do because after that, like Charlotte might always be like quote unquote home. But at the same time, I want the ability to come and go and and live and work wherever it is that I want to because the world is it's big. It, it's small in a sense as I can get to anywhere I want to go, but it's also big in a sense of there's not a lot of time to spend in the places I want to spend and actually develop relationships and get involved in that culture. So I want to get started right away. You know, it, interesting comment for you because I worked with expats when I was in China for seven years. And what we noticed was it took somebody 18 to 36 months to to go from why am I, oh my gosh, some days, why am I here? Oh, I love it here. The next day, why am I, why did I do this? Why don't I want to go back? It took people 18 to 36 months to get out of that cycle to where they felt like, oh, I'm so glad I'm here. I like it more. I'm going to stay longer than I thought. So just to be aware, twelve months might not might okay. not be a best representation hey, for it. I'm good with that. I'm good with it's I'm a, good with the, uh, pushing it out even further. Because the eighteen to thirty six months now you've got so now you have dependable friends that you're not feeling weird about calling. You're it's normal, right? They they, they have a deep understanding of you and and you you know you really get ingrained into the culture and uh, so that time frame it should be you should be aware of it. Okay. Thank you. I don't know if there's a psychological <laughs> thing behind it, but it was just interesting when we worked with people who had just gotten there. When we because we did review meetings every quarter, it was it was that we noticed that as a theme. Yeah, the culture shock would have to be hard, and that's one of the things I'm trying to take the edge off a little. Is you know I'm going to be fluent in Spanish when we hit the ground. And Are you fluent? Do you speak Spanish now? So I mean, I would say you know I can communicate with anyone who speaks Spanish. Like we can absolutely communicate and get our point across and, and not in this like weird, like hand gesture way. You, like I have the basics down, but uh, you know, I want to be far past that. Um, you know, I've hired a tutor that I sit and speak to okay. uh, who lives, uh, I really should know this off the top of my head, but he's in South America, but we just sit for an hour a week and we just talk to each other and he gives me lessons and, and it, it helps so much with the ability to think fast. Cause when you're just doing it on apps, and things like yeah. that, you get in a routine and you kind of know it. Right. But when you actually have to speak to somebody and he doesn't like, I mean, he slows down when he has to, but for the most part, he's just, da, 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 and, and I've got to keep up with it. And and so, and so he uses some slang. And the way he uses phrases, you don't learn on the apps as well either. Right. And, and so that was one of the most important things to me is I didn't want to find myself in this new country forced to then go out and learn the language. You know, not that I don't want to learn it even better when I get there, but... I felt like if we did that, we would be far more likely to try to find people who speak English just for, you know, that sense of community. And if we were able to speak to everyone everywhere we went, we'd have a, a much better chance, I feel like. Huh. Well, there is some point to the hand gesture. Thing. I actually enjoyed not being able to communicate to somebody and have to get something through. So it was a lot of facial expressions and, and hand gestures. Right. And I thought that was an interesting art that I could have a lot of people help me it get to what I what I needed without being able to communicate via words. I I like that. So oh yeah, and, and I like the ability to do it. Yeah. But if I you know <laughs> like this is a you know again this is a thought out plan. Yeah, and uh, and I want to be able to hit the ground running. And you know if I, if I can do business while I'm there, I'd like to be able to go ahead and do business while I'm there as well. Yeah. Um, so speaking of I'm languages, you. did you pick up uh, Chinese while you were there? Well, so very little. I'm, yeah, okay. I was uh, I was assuming that was like, yes, totally. I, yeah. speak it. <laughs> I said, yeah, I speak Chinese very little, but but it's interesting because I never picked up more than, there's like a 
there's a percentage gap once you get to it. You either speak less than 4% of it or like 28 or, or like 55% understanding. Sure. There's very little in between because <laughs> getting over that hump, it, that means you have all the basics down. I only had the basics. Gotcha. So when I, when I do talk to people in Chinese, I can actually say those phrases very well. So I say, oh, I speak very well. And then he'd say something, and I'd say, well, I hear you, but I don't understand. Yeah, not that well. <laughs> and, and they'd go, but we're speaking Chinese together. How is this? And I go, I don't understand what you just said. Right, like you've nailed the accent, and you've nailed and the phrases like, well, that you do like, But you're know. talking to me very well. And I go, no, that's it. That's, yeah. all, I, that's all I know. I cannot understand you. This is a random uh, call out here, but uh, do you watch Family Guy at all? The Mex- right. Yes, yeah, the, when he goes to Mexico and, and they're speaking English, yeah. Right, and the guy speaks to him, like he answers his question about, you know, like a word, a phrase he was trying to say in perfect yep. English. And then he says, he's like, oh, you speak English. And he's like, no, only this and that part explaining it. And then he says, he asks him another question. He's like, okay. Okay, yeah, yep, yep. So yeah, that, that's probably kind of how that's it That's exactly what it is, yep. <laughs> I love that. So how long were you there? Seven years. Okay. Seven years, and then I had uh, I worked at a company. It was called Elite Investment Group, and I I ran it. The owners were in London and Dubai, I believe. And when it it got to a point where we had built up to a good position, and there, an opportunity came in for them to sell it, and they sold it. And then a uh, new company. So the uh, new company came in a little bit different. I enjoyed them. They were they were okay. I you know I didn't. Uh, I liked uh, the principles that I had built at Elite Investment Group, so anything that's different is a little bit of change. It was good, but it was uh, I had a business divorce and a personal divorce in the same year, and that uh, that was 2013. And I had to unwind the practice there, and then we came back in uh, uh, 2014 and, and started working uh, here in in Charlotte. Okay, so what are you doing here now that you're back in Charlotte? So when I came back, I didn't know how what I was doing would relate. There was an aspect overseas that we worked in in, in partnership. Uh, uh, development that that uh, in China you have to have a business partner, 50-50 business partner. So there was a, a small market for working with those 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 people where the 50-50 business partner, the Chinese the Chinese national, even if he had no no experience, no anything else, who was with you, he was either there to try to steal the business or get a paycheck, and usually that you know that didn't work well. And we came up with using some financial plans to to help a compensation plan where the Chinese guy would agree to paying the American more that had benefits for both of them that prevented him or stopped him from trying to steal the company. And it, it gave him focus and a clear vision, so he worked well as well. And we came back here, and what we, what I realized was that some of these partnerships and business owners here might as well be, be a force to, or had the same dynamics at place. Uh, so we had in, we started Intuitive Compensation Group, which kind of addresses between not only partners, but and a lot of people, your listeners can probably relate to this, is you know, you, you hire somebody to come in. So you start a digital marketing company. You hire somebody to come in to help you out. They're doing some sales for you. They're managing some accounts for you. The next thing you know, they're next to you at the uh, group workspace starting their own company, and half of the clients went with you. You're trying to enforce a non-compete. They're, they they say, look, here's a letter that they didn't want to work with you in writing, and you spend a lot of money and get nowhere. Scrambling. Right. So yeah. so we do a lot of uh, compensation pl- packages that allow you to treat your empl- your your key employee, that, that rock star who, if he left, would be painful to rebuild or train somebody else. We do a lot of c- compensation pl- packages that have benefits for both the owner and allow you to treat that guy like an entrepreneur right within your firm. Uh, you are uh, – well, I hear this phrase more than I – 
I thought I ever would. Lawyer turned podcaster. But you, <laughs> but yeah, you know, in law firms, it's very, it's very popular too. You, you wind up bringing somebody into a firm. You give them your BC clients. You're paying them to develop their spheres of influence. By the time they come, become profitable at that three-year, four-year point, they go, wait, I'm doing all this work and I have all these connections. I'm just going to do this on my own. And then, boom. Well, the same thing applies to almost every business is, you know, whether you're selling trinkets or even podcasting. You train somebody else to run a couple of them so you can spend more time in Costa Rica. <laughs> right. Now they're <laughs> running the, their own. Yeah, now they got their own podcast. So we put we put plans in place. And, and that, the conversations overseas, that's what translated. I gave a, a seminar on a specific subject. It was 162 leverage bonus. And at the end of it, I had everybody's eyes on me. And I went, whoa, what did I just say? And the people who felt, who understood that pain of, I'm worried about losing my rock star employee. I don't want to train somebody else. I don't want to slow down. They're bringing in, a, they're profitable, but they know they are. I don't want to lose this guy. What? How does that work again for me? So I moved towards that and, and uh, for these, I guess, starting that, starting that up now. And that's been growing exponentially. So it's been good. Nice. So that's kind of how it turned into it. You were discussing it and you kind of saw this need in the market? I gave a speech in front of 30 business owners and the looks on their faces is why I said, up. Oh, this is something that I'm communicating about that is landing with, and if, you, if you're in the financial space of insurances, planning, or anything else, uh, business owners are the hardest to work with, but they're also the best clients to work with. And this was something that was very relevant to them, made a lot of sense, and, and uh, me communicating to it was working better than a lot of other people trying to do it, so I moved towards it. They're hard to work with, but they like it when you solve their pain points. Right, and their biggest pain point is not, how much am I going to put in my 401k this year? It's, if this guy leaves, I got to... I, I gotta, I gotta, I can't take my Friday off anymore. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, they get ten cold calls a day trying to sell them almost the same thing. Yeah. And uh, and and to actually address a pain point that they have that they would like to fix that no one is addressing at that moment. Yeah. Right. And and that's great. So I mean, you just saw this need and you said, "I'm going to go create it." Yep. Yeah. I mean, I like that. That's a that's certainly the entrepreneurial spirit because you all. I feel like you. Everyone knows these people who are like, "Oh, I had the idea for Uber." Well, you know, you know, we all had the idea yeah. for Uber. I mean, not you know, it's just having that idea is, is not important because you could have in that moment been like, man, creating different compensation packages to try to get employees to incentivize them to stay is a really good idea. But instead, you went home and you were like, business. Yep. Because I, you know what it was? I read one line in in Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week. And again, a lot of leaders, and I, I'm a big conference guy, I'm a big listener guy, so a lot of people tell you the same thing, and sometimes you hear it for the, t- it's the 10th person that tells you, or it's a book that tells you, and it, and it nails right. everything that's been planted in your subconscious gets nailed in that one point or one sentence. And it was the way that Tim Ferriss phrased it. He said, if you, you know, he had, he talked about the story of how he took, he was working 80 hours a week. Disaster after disaster, and he said, "Who are my favorite clients? I'm going to do 80/20 rule." So he cut it down to 20 to the top 20 percent, and then he kept going. He kept cutting and cutting and going. Nope, nope. That I, they annoy me here. They annoy me here. These two, these two clients. What do they do? What do they have in common? We're going to move towards that. We're going to be niche. We're just going to go after clients like that. Nobody else. And we're going to set all our processes around that and keeping them and keeping them happy. And he said, "I went from 80 hours to four hours, and that was the key." But it was. If you go niche and you only communicate that, it will lead to more business, more referral. It will make you more referable. It will make you kind of a subject expert, and you'll just get the kind of 
that type of client. So that would just get me business owner clients, and communicating that has led to a lot of great business owner clients for me. No, and that's such an important business lesson that is so counterintuitive yep. that you know I need to appeal to less people. Correct. And, and, and it's and hard. It is. Well, it's hard. And it's hard. It was so hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that I need to to figure out a way to make less people want to buy my products, and. And it was a long process for me, but I think podcasting helped a lot. Going to conferences and and meeting other podcasters and listening to podcasts. And I mean, there is, you know, just to really drill down, there's a podcast about two guys who like to watch the Gilmore Girls, and and it's yeah. a, it's a pretty famous podcast that is in a niche. Yeah. And, and and there's so many different things like that where people have gone out there and they've tried to just be like, hey, look at me, I exist, come buy my thing. Well, everyone's selling your thing. Why is your thing special? And you know, to to uh, plug my new show, uh, <laughs> I'm launching a men's personal development coaching business in a podcast, and it's called Getting Over the Girl. Well, I've been working in men's personal development for years, and I love it. It's, I mean, it really is my highest contribution in the universe to help men become better versions of themselves. I love it. So when I was starting that business, you know, I looked around, and there are guys in that space killing it, killing it better than I probably will ever kill it if I'm lucky like Ryan Mickler, Lewis Howes is arguably in that space as well. And they're doing so well with it. The guy from I am Alpha M. And it's not to say that there's not room in the market for a good product as well. But then I'm going face to face with these guys. I'm selling essentially the same product they're selling. And, and, and what is going to differentiate me? And the way to do that, I'm going to spend all this time and energy trying to just pound away at their market. When somebody goes looking for men's personal development, they're going to see him and then they're going to see me. Who are they going to choose? Yep. Because that person exactly. has credibility already. Yep. So when I was really developing my idea, I started brainstorming and writing out, you know, what are the things that I help guys with? What are specific things that I am good at that is maybe underserved in the market? And this didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like a light bulb. Uh, well, to be fair, it was when it finally <laughs> when it finally came on. It yeah. was like a light bulb because it happened in a moment. It is, and you're able to move forward. Right. But it, it hit me. It was, you know, I'm, I was really searching because a friend had even recommended, oh, we'll go on. You know, you can go on and get people to help you with your idea and they'll help you brand and you pay. And then you like kind of crowdsource idea creation. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm just, I'm ruthlessly authentic now in my life. And I said, you know, I have a feeling that it's out there. I just need to find it. And the very next day I was driving and I just, it kind of hit me that one of the things, and I love it. I love it when a guy shows up and he's going through a breakup. Not because the breakup happened. The breakup was going to yeah. happen. Regardless know, of. Yeah, I didn't make yeah. it happen. Well, but, we hope. We hope. Right. <laughs> Hopefully nothing I did <laughs> along the way. But there's they, they show up and they're raw. And, and they have a level of motivation that I have never seen anywhere else for positive change. Yeah. They have this, this terrible thing has happened. No revenge like success, they say. <laughs> right? But it's so true. And, and sometimes they're coming from a point of like, oh, I just want to show her. But by the end, once we're done working together, they don't care about showing her. That's not even important. Yeah. A lot of them would just like to have a cordial friendship. Self-fulfillment. Yeah, right. They want self-fulfillment. But in the beginning, it's okay to harness that because I can't just make that feeling go away. And, and there's so much motivation in that moment. So it kind of, it just came to me. I said, wow. And so I was almost home and I got in and I was like, I can barely contain myself. I was talking to my wife and she's like, I love it. And then we sit down and we start researching it to see, and we're looking around in the market. Cause that's the biggest thing. Is it underserved? Yeah. And, 
And it is, but look in my that, opinion. Look at that niche. Look what you did. How referable is that? When somebody breaks up, they're going to go, you got to talk to you. And right. if all of your communication is about, the, they go to your podcast for it, they're going to go, this guy gets it. I got to be with this guy because I am in that rut and I need, if somebody could help me get out of it or if there was a process to, to get over this. That right, would, that would be fantastic. And, so referable, and and that that's absolutely it. And the and the really great part of it is a lot of our work is also basic personal development. Yeah. So you know we're we're getting through the breakup and we're using the skills and creating habits and routines to get through that. But we're also working on stuff that even if you hadn't gone through a breakup, that would still be applicable to your life. And so they come in and they work on the thing, you know, they, they're working through this. And then once the smoke clears, they're a different, they're a better person. And then we talk about, all right, now where are we going? Right. Now that you've gotten through this, where do you want to go now? Because the sky's the limit. You know, you said something else in there that I that wanted to pick out. You said, you know, when you when you realize that this was your niche, and this will go back to the listeners, when you realize that you this is going to be my niche... Uh, you said it was like a light bulb went out. There's a there's kind of a saying and moving towards that niche that the listeners I think can can gravitate towards as well. Once you know, and once you have it, the saying is: once your subconscious knows or believes something, your conscious mind knows what to know already knows what to do to get there. And and so many startup hustlers they they know what they should be doing, but they don't do it. They don't do, to get this and what. They haven't had that moment where they're moving towards it because it's not in their subconscious. It's not part of them, and they don't move towards it hard enough. But they, when you can get there or if you can coach somebody to get to that, so where are we going next? If you can get it as part of their subconscious, they will – they'll wake up. They'll jump out of bed at 8. They will have the energy to move towards it. They'll know what needs to get done, and they'll do it, and that gives such a competitive advantage compared to – you know, somebody who's just kind of doing it because they think they should be doing it. No, you're absolutely right. And that's, and that's where the breakup is so strong as well, is they come in, they have this motivation for change. So they start creating habits and routines that ultimately are going to exist after the smoke clears. And, and, and they're going to have kind of set up these cues in their life that are going to draw them forward. They're going to become that new person and they're going to be drawn to be even better after that. But I want to circle back to what you, you know, you kind of kept hitting on is it's referable. Right. Because if I was in men's personal development, like, oh, I help men become better versions of themselves. I help them define who it is they want to be and create systems to actually get there. Right. Uh, because a lot of them, that's the biggest problem, is they don't believe that they are the kind of person that can actually be like that. And they don't, e- even if they wanted to believe it, they don't understand how to even take the first step. Right. But there's a thousand guys who are every bit as, if, as qualified, if not more qualified, to do that. Right. To take them in that specific direction, and and so when they think, oh well, who could I refer you to? Now I'm just competing, but now I drill down into that niche, and and someone says, man, I I'm having like my my girlfriend just broke up with me. She just moved out. Uh, I just launched my business, and and I am having trouble focusing and paying attention. I feel like that maybe this isn't the right time. I just need to shut it down. At that moment, they're like, you need to talk to Rob. Yep. You need to talk yeah. to Rob because Rob's been there. Yeah, Rob so. knows how to do that. And, and it's so referable because they, off the top of their head, they know that's who you need to talk to. Right. And so, but so many times as well, and let me use your, your example, but it, I'll try and relate it to because Startup Grind has so many different uh, business sure. entities coming into and trying to do it. But for, for business coaches, so many business coaches are just so happy to get a client that they take one. They'll take like a, a woodworking shop over here, but then they'll take like somebody who is exit strategy over here 
And, you know, you try to be a master to all and you wind up being a master to no one. And that doesn't become referable. You're stretching yourself thin. You're stre- you've got to put a lot of time and energy into learning it where if you just kind of stayed in your lane and you had those predictable processes, it's more referable, it's easier and more fun for your business. And it just makes it, it, it will attract more to you of the kind of business you want to be doing. So if you're out there starting a table company, don't just settle for the coffee tables. Hey, we only make boardroom tables. You know, start thinking in how I can communicate niche. And if you're, if your if your bread and butter is coffee tables, then just move towards that. But it will allow you to to sift to the top of people who are in the exact need. And when you only communicate that niche, they'll be attracted to you, and it's easier to refer people to you as well. And right. That's what you'll find. Do the one thing and do it well. And if you focus on that one thing, like you said, you know, I think back to starting my law practice. It is the ability to have systems in place to do that one thing well. And, Better than everybody else. Right. And and I teach CLEs, and, and most of what I teach is uh, I do law of technology for new lawyers. And But at the same time, I still like to come around and, and touch on some of the things I think are hyper important. I want to make sure they know. And one of them is is figure out what you're going to do and, and, and do that. And it's so hard for new lawyers when they come out and they open up their own firms is because they're a lawyer. They can literally, I mean, they are authorized to practice all many, almost any kind of law under North Carolina law. And, and so they, they practice what we call door law, anything that comes in the door. And, yeah. and because they need money. Yep. Somebody shows up, I'll figure it out. And, and while that does make you money, it also, I mean, the amount of headaches it's going to create in your practice is, is, are immeasurable. It is. And, but you're also not getting into a niche. You're not learning how to be an expert in anything by being a little bit good at everything. And, and that's so hard for new attorneys to pick up. But that's why I think it's so important to oppress it upon them is, you know, it's going to be hard and it's going to be really hard in the beginning. But if you can pick the one thing, the one thing that you're going to be the person who does that, then when that thing comes up, yep, boom, you need to go easier to get on to podcasts, easier to get speaking engagements, easier to get right. us brought in to do an article on a topic, easy right. to get referred to. And it just opens the doors so much more. It's going to be harder in the beginning. It's going to be easier in the long run. Right. You know, but it's just, it's getting over that nasty beginning where you have to crawl on your hands and knees and scrape to make it. Yep. Yep. And, so. it, and it makes it easier to put processes in place because then you're not going outside of that process and develop and putting something new together. It's already done and, and goes in there. Right. And that's was, where, you know, that's where interning helped me out a lot is I would go, <laughs> I would go intern at someone's office and they do this one thing and you would walk in and you would see it like from the phone ringing to that person ending up at the, at the, in the desk to closing out the case. Everything had, everyone had their own job. Everything had a process. A lot of it was automated on the computer. And, and it was just like watching a well-oiled machine. Yeah, I tell you, there's a, one of my favorite sayings is uns, uh, unsuccessful people have goals, successful people have processes. And I am not a process person. So I'm, I have to be very aware that I needed to build it. So when we started the company here, the first thing I did was I said, don't go out and communicate until you have the entire process outlined, mapped, what happens, what happens when, how does it go through? Because if if you don't know where you are in your process or you're winging it, your client's not going to know where they are in the process right. and they're not going to move forward. Right. If they don't have clarity, you don't move forward. Yeah, if you can't explain it to them like they're four years old, then you don't know it well enough and they're not going to know it well enough to buy from Correct. you. Correct. Yeah, I, I love that, man. And so one of the things that I've kind of changed lately is when I first got into personal development, it was all about goal setting. You know, like you said, having goals. And... And lately, I kind of picked it up from a number of different resources, but I've written down really the vision 
instead of the goals being, okay, I'm going after this, I've spent a lot more time curating the vision, where it is I want to be, what the life I want to live looks like, what my values are, my core values and beliefs, because that, and it has made my life so much simpler because now when decisions come up, I don't, everything's got a filter. Everything has a filter. I don't have to think, should I do this? What are the cost benefits? Before I ever get to cost benefit, I run it through my values. And if it's not aligned with my values, we don't do it. We don't even make the cost benefit analysis because it's not aligned with where I want to go. It is not going to get me closer to my vision. And, and that has been incredibly helpful. And I, I, encourage everyone to do that, you know, kind of write down what your core values and beliefs are. And and that way you're not stuck making a decision when every opportunity comes up. You can kind of, before you even have to make the decision, you can vet it. And that, the vision helps put that subconscious in place. So if the subconscious knows you're automatic, even your decision makings that you're not filtering are automatically going to move towards it. Right. And going to, instead of goals, we did vision. The problem with goals and why I say people have goals are unsuccessful and people who have processes are successful is because if you have a goal, first thing you need to do is put the processes in place to track how you're moving towards that goal so you can have the processes in place to track if you're moving towards it. So even if you have goals, you need the processes to to make them happen. So right. for those of you who are going, I have goals and I hit them. Yeah, you had processes in place to hit them. So. Right. What is a smart goal, specific, measurable? Yep. Um, yeah, I always, always run out there. And, <laughs> time and bound. Accountable. Accountable, time bound. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is the R? Uh, this eh, whatever. Maybe rest. I'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> uh, but right, you have to have those processes in place. But that helped me so much. And it, it even retooled my goals because some of the goals I had, you know, I realized weren't really necessarily in line with the vision that I ultimately have for my life. Well, and the problem is the goals make it, they made it too small. Without the overarching vision, the goals were too little. They were like, oh, I want to do this. I want to do this. But with the vision in place, like here is where I want to be in 20 years. Here's what my life looks like to me. Now the goals are building towards something bigger. They are just part of the greater whole instead of kind of being one, two, three, four, five here and there that I'm trying to get that ultimately will get me to some like kind of idea that I have for success. Um, and then you break it down even further into those processes of how to get that goal to come out. Right. But yeah, that vision has been very helpful for me. The vision and the values. Uh, have been very helpful in helping me. And I'm more successful with my goals now. I mean, you're probably right. That subconscious says, I know where we're going yep. now. So I- instead of just attacking little goals day to day, we are doing everything in furtherance of. Yep. So, well, I will not keep you here all day. Is there, I always like to see what people are reading because I'm always looking to add books to my queue that is already way too big. I'm doing a lot of listening. Well, sure. I mean, you know, I I listen. I mean, I probably, for every book I physically read, uh, I'm probably listening to, you know, 15, 20 other books in the meantime. I'll tell you, I think the last book I read was Court's book because it was not in audio yet before we did our interview. (laughs) So I I had to sit down and physically read it, which I enjoyed. I mean, it's nice. I'm very tactile. I grew up reading, you know, obviously books because there was really no other way. So I still really enjoy the book. But at the same time, I mean, I, 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 I am very much product of the digital age now. I love my Kindle because I can take it anywhere. Actually, I use my iPad now, but I love it because I can take any book I want anywhere I want to go and I don't have to lug stuff around. And and I love audiobooks because it allows me to blast through a book in two days that I wouldn't have the time to sit down and read. Right. So I have where I've been, I read a lot of news clips for my industry or the things that I'm doing is where my readings goes. Last book I read was for our work week and that allowed me to change and rebrand towards the the intuitive so i don't i don't need to read another book that inspires me to do something right now but i have i've been doing a lot of po- more podcasts uh, the speaker lab is where i where i've landed now the speaker lab has been a 
uh, a podcast that helps people who are looking to develop a speaking career, and I stay on top of it, listening to other speakers, how they did it, the tools of the trade, etc. So it's about 160 episodes that they put out, and I've been working through that. That's the most recent one in lieu of books at the moment. Uh, other than that, it's been just a more hustle of trying to build towards that. Sure. Any uh, any books out of your past you think were really important to help you get to where you are? I loved the the, the four hour week work week was the one probably in the bat and that that had the most impact. I would yeah, say that was a very good book. Uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad was my my earliest one. Yeah, uh, that one comes up on the podcast a lot. I'm a late bloomer because this was written in, in I think the twenties. The uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, absolutely, Dale Carnegie's book. Yep. I I think I got to that two years ago for the first time, and it is a fantastic book. I think it. it I've always, whether I knew it or not, had a niche to to move towards the art of communication. And what I really, my favorite quote in that book was uh, Roosevelt or uh, Rockefeller, sorry. Rockefeller had said, as a commodity, the ability to communicate is just like any other commodity that's out there. But as a commodity, I will pay more for the ability to communicate than for any other commodity out there. And I thought that was a, a big thing that even your listeners could could be aware of because it's how we communicate to sale, to raise money, to sell, to lead everything else. And I think that communication skills are very difficult to invest in. I would suggest people go cold call for a while because it builds those hard skills, massively hard skills. No, absolutely. And, I, and I've talked about this a number of times as well, is that was one of the skills that I wrote down that I needed to improve. And I actively got and aggressively got out there and improved upon it because I like connecting with people. But if you are not a good communicator, you're going to find it a lot harder to do yep. that. So there is a multitude of resources out there, free and inexpensive, uh, to, to sharpen that because it's a skill like every other skill. People think of, you know, oh, I want to learn how to hit a baseball. I need to go out and obviously go out and swing and learn how to hit that baseball. Well, when it comes to the skills of, of personal interaction, we, we don't think of it that way. So many people think, oh, self-help, and it has this negative connotation, and, and they look at it as kind of people being hucksters. And it's like, what where did we develop that mindset that every other skill that we need to learn, you know, we would never look at a uh, you know at a baseball player look at Bryce Harper and be like man can you believe how much time and energy he put into trying to get that good man if he wasn't already that good why did he care and that is absolutely the attitude that so many people take on personal development is you either have it or you don't right and I that's bullshit to me uh, so I mean I know my listeners know that well by now but I mean if you want to be a better person if you want to develop a skill if you want to be the kind of person that can walk into a room and talk to anyone. You can learn how to do that, and I encourage you to start today. Buy a book, listen to a podcast, do something, do anything, listener. All right, well, I won't keep you here all day, Kevin. I really appreciate you taking some time to sit down with us. Uh, I got a ton of value out of this. I know my listeners did too. So any last words for us? Don't be afraid to invest in yourself. And the, the going along your point right there, what I found is the investment that makes you a bit uncomfortable to develop or to move towards something is probably the one that, that pushes you to get there. I love that. Where can we find you online? Kevin Monahan, intuitivecompensation.com is the company, and you can look me up. 
Facebook, on social media? Else. No, my industry is very restrictive on social media, so I'll leave it at the website. I hear that. That's one of uh, the reasons I'm pretty happy about where I am, too, is I can say pretty much any bullshit I want on social media now (laughs) with very little repercussions other than to my 1,000 true fans who I adore with all my heart. All right. Thanks so much. And we will link all of that on the blog and the show notes so the listeners can reach out and find you at uh, the Intuitive Compensation Group. Correct. All right. Thanks so much, Kevin. You got it. Have a great day. All right. All right, listeners, I hope you got a tenth of the value from this episode as I did. Kevin was such an inspiration to sit and talk with. His attitude and perspective on life are inspiring, and I encourage you to take a page out of his book. When an opportunity presents itself, don't flounder around and think, oh, I don't know if I'm the right person. Seize that opportunity. Go after it. Make things happen. Motion leads to emotion, so get out there and start doing something, and you're going to be compelled to keep moving and keep chasing it. So do something, do anything today that is going to get you one step closer to where it is that you want to be. Now get out there and get after it. All right, before I let you go, one quick reminder about the comprehensive podcasting course at Advent Coworking from idea to iTunes. And you're going to get all that delicious podcasting goodness served up in person by yours truly. Whether you already have an idea or you need some help nailing one down, in just four short weeks, I'm going to help you take that idea and launch it on iTunes. So if you're ready to press play on your own podcast, head on over to yourpod.pro to sign up for details. That's yourpod.pro. All right, listeners, I know that your time is your most valuable asset. So I thank you once again for spending just a little bit of that time with me today. Now, until next week, get out there and get after it.